From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow at Family Research Council, and it is my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have joined us. Great program for you today. Several topics that we are going to discuss. Big week because Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement from the Supreme Court. What's his legacy, and what should we expect from his replacement? We'll discuss that a little bit later. Today is also the one-year anniversary anniversary of President Biden revoking the Mexico City policy, which prohibits federal tax dollars being used for abortions overseas. What's been the result of that policy decision? In addition, at the end of the program, Self-described liberals are objecting to Leah Thomas, a male competing on a women's swim team at the University of Pennsylvania. Do they have a right to object, or is this all a logical result of ideas that the left has been embracing and promoting for decades? That's going to be the subject of our worldview conversation at the end of the program. But first, the top story today. So far, the Biden administration's diplomacy forever tactics with Russia have failed to yield success. The Kremlin said yesterday there was, quote, little ground for optimism after the terms of their ultimatum, removing NATO forces from Eastern Europe and permanently barring Ukraine from entering NATO membership, were rejected. Russia's movements along the Ukrainian border continue to cause concern. Here's what Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said yesterday. Continue to see, uh, including in the last 24 hours, uh, uh, more accumulation of of credible combat uh, forces uh, arrayed by the Russians uh, in, again, the western part of their country and in uh, in Belarus. So without getting into a tick-tock every day of how much more we're seeing, we continue to see him add to that capability. Not dramatic, as I said the other day, also not sclerotic. President Biden also held a long phone conversation with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky discussing joint action and economic support. According to a spokesperson for the White House National Security Council, President Biden said that there is a distinct possibility that the Russians could invade Ukraine in February. Could that be prevented? Here to unpack the moves and counter moves is U.S. Representative Scott Perry. He's a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He's also the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. He represents Pennsylvania's 10th Congressional District. Congressman Perry, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. And it is indeed an interesting time. You know, uh, the president, his actions, this president, President Biden's actions have created the circumstances in Ukraine, in my opinion. And uh, it's up to him to get to get us out of the, uh, those circumstances. It's not uh, you know, he should not count on our military to make up for his blunders. He's given Russia everything that they've wanted, um, and uh, and so there, you know, it, it makes sense that they're just going to continue to go for more. And so these unilateral, um, unrestricted demands by Russia should not be seen by the United States as anything serious. And uh, and and you know we don't uh, we don't submit ourselves to the demands of essentially what is a totalitarian 
uh, country under the leadership of Vladimir Putin and, and free countries. Yes. Yeah. I, I just want to see if I can get you to elaborate a bit on why it is that you think this situation is something that the Biden administration has essentially created. Well, it's created it in, in, in two very striking ways. First of all, he's, uh, he's given the waiver to Russia to, uh, to complete their Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which allows Russia to hold the rest of Europe hostage for, for, the, for the very vital energy resources that they need, especially during the wintertime. And, and number two, the, uh, the debacle and the botched uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, if you will. Russia sees that. We telegraphed absolutely complete weakness and a misunderstanding of the circumstances on the ground. Russia sees that. Our adversaries see that. They see this as an opportunity to strike and further their goals. And, and so while Biden spoke tough about Russia on the campaign trail and said that Vladimir Putin didn't want him to be president because he's the only one that's gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with the president, it's pretty clear right now that uh, what Vladimir Putin sees is his... Uh, his uh, uh, boot prints all over President Biden's forehead as he's walked right across him. This is up to President Biden and, quite honestly, NATO and the EU, the EU to settle. And uh, it should not take American forces. It's great that we're providing military uh, supply support, material support in the way of arms and equipment. Uh, and, and, and we should do that with our allies, allies anytime that they need assistance. But but sending our daughters, our sons and daughters over there to die on behalf of uh, President Biden's botched uh, diplomacy is not the right answer here. And uh, I think it would be a grave mistake. Now, Congressman, you mentioned there Russia's goals. And I want to get into that a bit because in these diplomatic negotiations, Russia has made two demands. And they've said, we want all NATO troops out of Eastern Europe. And secondly, we want promises, assurances that Ukraine will never be allowed to be a member of NATO. Why are these things important to Russia? Well, they're important to Russia because Russia is an activist country that, that essentially gobbles up or would like to reconstitute uh, the Soviet Union by gobbling up the client states around it or the states that, uh, the, that are unfortunately weak because of size, because of corruption, because of lack of a military presence around them. They would like to reconstitute the Soviet Union. And, of course, NATO troops uh, centered in those countries would be a huge deterrent to that. Uh, they don't want any involvement with NATO. They don't want any freedom by these countries. And, and, and of course, people will say, well, you know, why can't Russia determine its own fate without having NATO countries on their borders, you know, pointing weapons at them? The problem is, is that Russia has a history of gobbling up and taking over territory. It's very different from the United States, who wishes to live, live and let live with its neighbors, even though we have neighbors sometimes that disagree with us, whether that's in Central America, whether that's in South America, or, or even in the Caribbean. And I would just say, is Russia interested or willing in moving all of their troops and all of their influence out of Cuba or Venezuela or the rest of South America, I highly doubt it. Well, it's strange then, because it appears that Russia's position is, unless you stay weak and vulnerable so then we can invade you, we will invade you. Is that an accurate description of what they're saying? I think that is an accurate description. And let me be very clear. I'm not for being uh, softening our position on Russia whatsoever. I, but the problem here is, is that uh, President Biden has blundered his way into making the United States, uh, putting the United States into a position of weakness. And it's up to him now to get us out of that position of weakness by showing some strength 
He should issue sanctions, revoke the waiver on Nord Stream 2, get with our European allies and pressure them to do the right thing. Right now, Germany is not helping, helping very much. And then furthermore, get NATO. This is what NATO was created for. Where is NATO? Why is, not, why is NATO not taking the lead on this on the front lines militarily, diplomatically, and economically every way that they can to stop Russia's aggressive behavior, which they've always had in our lifetime, and it looks like under Vladimir Putin that's not going to cease. Ukraine has been a developing, certainly imperfect, but a developing democracy over the last three decades. Do you think that that poses any kind of threat to Putin as the region sees a democracy develop? Or do you think this is more just about an old USSR guy trying to put the band back together? Well, I think it actually is both. I think he would like to put the band back together. He would write, like as much as possible to reconstitute the USSR under his generally totalitarian regime. It's an oligarchy now. Uh, it's horrifically corrupt, and it's run by one person for life. That is Vladimir Putin. And, uh, and so you can have both at the same time. A democracy would certainly... Uh, challenge that. They don't want that, whether it's the Russians and their oligarchy, uh, that's, a, that's essentially a tyrannical government, or whether it's the communist Chinese who are now more and more working in league with Russia. So that's exactly why we have a stake in this. But let's be very clear-eyed about it, and let's be very careful what we commit to. Is there a way for the United States, or frankly, the global community, to make sure that Russia does not invade Ukraine, in your opinion? I think there is, and I think the way is economically, and that's, uh, that's Russia and Vladimir Putin's Achilles heel. And, of course, that's our strength, and it's much of the rest of the world's strength in energy production. But, again, President Biden let the horse out of the barn. He let Russia essentially open up Nord Stream 2, and now they will, they will coerce and extort their neighbors and, and bully their neighbors using military, at least the, um, the imprimatur or the specter the uh, the threat of military force if they need to, but they can certainly turn off the valves to the very necessary gas and oil that these countries need, especially during the wintertime. We need to fill that space, and actually we can do a lot to uh, to bring Russia back into the fold economically if we're willing to do it. Representative Scott Perry, a lot of attention here on the Ukrainian-Russian border we still have some issues at our own border with our southern neighbor. In December, Border Patrol uh, apprehended 178,000 people, which is more than 100,000 more than any other December on record. What's happening here? Record, month after month, uh, under the Biden administration, record after record has fallen, as we've seen up to upwards of 2 million people illegally cross our border. President Biden is focused on the Ukrainian border, but he's certainly not focused on ours. As a matter of fact, he's encouraging and has encouraged people to continue to stream across the border illegally. There's over 100 countries. We don't know the status of these people. We don't know if they might be on the terror watch list. There are many that get away other than the ones that come in and, into our country and burden our systems, whether it's health care, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's national security. So I would say whatever is good for the Ukrainian border and securing that from Russian incursions certainly is good for the American border and, incur and, and securing that from incursions as well. And I just wonder if Pre President Biden would be okay if the Russians said, well, look, we're not going to bring our guns, we're not going to bring our tanks, but we're going to stream across the uh, Ukrainian border and take up residence in the, in, the, uh, 
in the homes and the businesses in Ukraine. Would that be okay? Because that's similar to what's happening in the United States of America right now. And under President Biden, that, that's, that is, uh, that's, the, that's the circumstance, and it's going on unabated. It's why we're planning to hold a hearing in the House Freedom Caucus next month um, on this subject, because the, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle in the House refuse to address it, and, of course, the administration refuses to address it. But the American people are feeling the effects of it, and we in Congress think that something ought to be done about it. If my colleagues on the other side of the, of the, uh, other side of the aisle won't deal with it and have a hearing on it, we certainly will. Congressman Perry, we've got about 30 seconds. Of these 178,000 people being apprehended, does this mean it's working? Are they all being sent back, or is something else happening? <laughs> no, what we know is happening, and, and you're probably kind of alluding to this, is that they're being sent all across the interior of the country. And, uh, and of course, this is flouting the law. And so this is the chief, this is the executive branch, those who are uh, that have taken an oath and charged with upholding our laws are actually breaking the law, sending these, uh, these people under the cover of darkness many times to all kinds of cities around the, the country. And of course, as citizens, as citizens of the United States under law, you are not allowed to question how many, where they're going, what the cost is, what their status is. Um, that's what's actually occurring. You're not seeing bunching them bunch up at the border because this government, this administration has become very efficient at moving them into the interior of the country to your neighborhood. Congressman Scott Perry, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. God bless you. God bless you. Coming up after the break, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer announced his resignation this week, his retirement what is his legacy as a Supreme Court justice? And what should we expect from his successor? That's the conversation we'll have when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. For centuries, the Bible has inspired humanity and shaped the very world we live in. But how do we know this book is the word of God and not merely the words of men? What we believe about the Bible is based on what we believe about its source. The God Who Speaks explores the evidence of the Bible's inspiration and authority through some of the world's most respected biblical scholars. We have essentially a dual authorship. So it's true to say that Paul wrote Romans. It's equally true to say that God wrote Romans. He says, we saw this, and that sets the Bible apart from almost everything else in the ancient world and its religious pantheon of gods and goddesses. The God Who Speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. Here's a moment of Hope for Your Home with Jerry and Becky Drace. Parents, how much do you love your children? How do you express your love to them? Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is a powerful emotion. Just speaking a kind, loving word can bring a smile to a lonely person or restore a broken relationship. Even a small expression of love can lift the spirit of someone who is sad. God's love is eternally stronger than any love we can experience from another person. He showed the depth of His love when He sent His Son, Jesus, to give His life for you. God's love will prevail when there seems to be no love around. His love is secure and His love is true. Find new ways for your family to share God's love this year. Does God love you? Absolutely. 
Learn more about the ministry of Jerry and Becky Drace at hopeforthehome.org. This has been a moment of hope for your home. This time of year, many people make resolutions, but unfortunately, they just don't stick. Franklin Graham. Let me tell you about a decision that you can make today that can change your life, not just for this year, but for eternity. You see, God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to take our sins. And he died on a cross and he shed his blood for our sins. And he was buried. And on the third day, God raised him to life. If you're willing to trust Jesus, he will change your life, not just for this year, but for eternity. Just pray this prayer with me. Just say, God, I've sinned. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I believe that Jesus is your son. I want to trust him as my savior. And I'm willing to follow him as my Lord from this day forward forever. Amen. Someone is ready to talk with you right now about a relationship with Jesus Christ or simply pray with you. Call 888-388-2683. That's 888-388-2683. God bless you and a happy new year to each and every one. We're the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Yesterday, the United States Supreme Court Associate Justice Stephen Breyer was at the White House for his official retirement announcement. At 83, he is the oldest current justice and a longtime member of the liberal wing of the court. President Biden has already told us what he's looking for in Justice Breyer's replacement. While I've been studying candidates' backgrounds and writings, I've made no decision except one. The person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. Of course, President Biden's nominee will be the subject of much conversation. But in the meantime, let's take a look back at Justice Breyer's time on the bench in our nation's highest court. And joining us now is the Heritage Foundation's John Malcolm, who's the vice president for their Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. John, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Joseph. Thank you. And most people uh, in the audience are not Supreme Court watchers. How would you describe Justice Breyer's legacy as a justice? Uh, Justice Breyer is a pragmatist and an incrementalist. Uh, He did not believe in making bold moves uh, on terribly many issues. He certainly was a living constitutionalist. He did not believe uh, that the words and phrases in the Constitution necessarily needed to be interpreted uh, as they were understood by the people at the time those provisions were ratified. He believed that these words could take on new meaning uh, to suit modern times. Uh, He believed in balancing uh, uh, tests with lots of factors. He would ask these long-winded hypothetical questions during oral arguments that would bedevil uh, advocates, uh, very much middle of the road. He was a, re- a reliable liberal vote on most issues that the left cares about, abortion, uh, you know, Second Amendment uh, rights, racial preferences. On some other issues, like criminal law uh, issues, he was a former member of the Sentencing Commission. He could come out with the results that conservatives would like. In some business disputes involving lawsuits against corporations, uh, he sometimes uh, broke from the liberal wing. But on most of the social issues, uh, the death penalty included, 
uh, he was a pretty reliable uh, liberal uh, voice. So do you think perhaps criminal issues and business issues are where he would uh, distinguish himself from current members of the left wing of the court like uh, Sotomayor and Kagan? Yeah, certainly from, from Sonia Sotomayor uh, and, and probably from Elena Kagan too. I mean, the, the most you know, liberal member of the court uh, is Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, and Elena Kagan is also, uh, uh, Justice Kagan is very much a pragmatist too and will sort of curb things in order to uh, either come out with results that she likes or make sure that opinions aren't as bad as she feared. Uh, Justice Breyer, very courtly gentleman. Uh, he was on the bench for a very, very long time, right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He was appointed by President Clinton in 1994. He sat for a number of years uh, on the First Circuit as a judge. Before that, he happened to be my antitrust professor when I was in uh, when I was in law school. Uh, you know, a, a left-leaning, mainstream jurist. An interesting. Uh anecdote about him is he replaced Justice Blackman, who happened to be the justice who wrote the Roe versus Wade decision, which uh, perhaps providentially, coincidentally, uh, may be overturned in the days and weeks before he resigns. We don't know that, but that is a potential scenario. Now, there was, uh, there is been some, uh, some discussion about the circumstances surrounding his resignation. Do you think in any way Justice Breyer has been pressured into making this announcement when he did? Well, at the end of last term, the left was putting tremendous pressure on uh, Justice Breyer. There's a, a very liberal group called Demand Justice that actually literally rented a truck that drove back in front of the Supreme Court with a billboard that said, Breyer, retire now. I don't think there's any question that he wanted to be replaced by uh, President Biden. The Democrats have the slimmest of majorities uh, at uh, the moment. I was surprised, not that he was going to leave at the end of this term. I was a little surprised by the timing of the announcement. I would have thought he would have made it at the end of the term. Perhaps it was his intention to make that announcement uh, at the end of the term. But once it was leaked out, that he had informed the president that he was going to step down at the end of the term. There was no waiting until the end of June to make that announcement. And so briefly, a bit about the potential replacement. Um, we know that President uh, Trump, no one was surprised when he replaced, when he nominated uh, Amy Coney Barrett, a woman, to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That was expected. But Presidents haven't typically come out and been as explicit about their expectations. President Biden coming out and saying a black woman will be nominated to this seat. What's your reaction to that? Well, I'm not somebody who's a big fan of identity politics. I don't think there should be quotas uh, on the court. I don't think you should sit there and say, you know, I'm going to pick a man or a woman or a black person or an Asian or a white guy. You know, I, I, I think you look at the merits of each candidate, their qualifications, their judicial temperament, uh, and their judicial philosophy. That having been said, you know, I have no doubt uh, that there are many qualified people whom the president can look at, particularly uh, given the judicial philosophy that this president has. The important thing to remember is that the Democrats do control the Senate, and there is no filibuster for judicial nominees. There hasn't been a single Democratic senator who's voted against any of the nominees to the federal bench that the president has made. So if they all stick together, he could really put on the court anybody he wants 
uh, even if there was no Republican support. Some of the names that are being mentioned, I think, would have, you know, there, there would be a less contentious confirmation fight. All confirmation fights for the Supreme Court are contentious. But if he goes with, say, a, a Judge Ketanji Jackson, a Brown Jackson, who's on the D.C. Circuit, who's been through this process twice before, most recently last June, got three Republican votes. Or if he goes with the Leandra Kruger, who's a justice uh, on the California Supreme Court, former uh, uh, John Paul Stevens clerk, and, and argued 12 cases in front of the Supreme Court. John I, Malcolm? It's going to be hard. Yeah. Got to go? Yeah, we are, out of, we are out of time. But I'll finish with that. It is going to be hard for them to say no. That's kind of the expectation, but we will see, and we'd love to have you back on to discuss it. Thanks for your time today. I'd love it. Okay, bye-bye. Coming up after the break, the one-year anniversary of the revocation of the Mexico City policy. What does it mean? We'll talk about it when we come back here on Washington Watch. Making the most of your money. Here's Dan Celia on American Family Radio. Well, as we close out the week, we're looking at oil uh, over $87 a barrel. I suspect we can continue to see higher oil prices. We're definitely going to see $100 a barrel oil out of Brent crude oil in the very near future, and we could be headed that way here. Gasoline prices have to start going up here sooner than later. The only thing that's keeping gasoline prices a little bit at bay is demand, and demand is low. So that is helping dramatically. It's kind of offsetting the higher prices of oil. The question is, how long can that last? I guess if consumers continue to hunker down, it'll last a little bit longer than we would like to see. But as we finish off the week, yes, we did get a higher than expected GDP number, which really doesn't make any sense. But nonetheless, we are getting personal income and consumer spending. Very, very important numbers coming out. And the Michigan consumer sentiment number, those are expected to be down. Next week is a big week. We get manufacturing and service sector index construction spending, job openings, job quits, and we are going to be looking at some other housing numbers. On Friday, we get non-farm payrolls. All those things, very important as we move forward. And we'll watch those closely. So between Friday and the rest of next week, some important economic data that is going to give us some insights into the continued heated up inflation story as everybody continues to mill over what the Federal Reserve is about to do and whether it's going to help. Want to hear more financial advice from Dan Celia? Look for his podcast at AFR.net. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Glad that you have joined us. One year ago today, President Biden issued an executive order rescinding the Protect Life in Global Health Assistance Policy, also known as the Mexico City Policy. Like every Republican president since Ronald Reagan, President Trump had enacted this policy, which prevented U.S. taxpayer dollars from funding abortion or abortion providers overseas. Trump's version of the policy was particularly strong it also cut off taxpayer funding for abortions through subcontractors. But a week into his term, President Biden 
revoked that policy and opened the spigot of American tax dollars to subsidizing abortions overseas. Here to discuss the legacy of Biden's action is Connor Semmelsberger, Director of Federal Affairs for Life and Human Dignity at Family Research Council. Connor, good to see you. Great to see you as well, Joseph. Well, it's a sad anniversary, uh, but one that was not surprising. Why is, why was the Mexico City policy good policy? Yeah, the Mexico City policy, as you alluded to, was started by Ronald Reagan back in the 80s to say, as much as we're funding different types of foreign aid programs, the one thing our country does not want to fund is subsidizing abortion industry abroad and their work in other countries abroad. And so, like you said, every Republican president had had implemented a similar Mexico City policy, maybe a few tweaks here or there, um, as uh, George H.W. Bush and W. Bush put it into effect. But boy, when President Trump came in in 2017, he didn't just renew the Mexico City policy. He upped the ante big time, you know, rebranding it as the Protecting Life and Global Health Assistance Policy and not just cutting off those funds, right, that go directly to International Planned Parenthood or Marie Stopes International, the two biggest abortion conglomerates around the globe. But they said, we're not going to let any of our federal foreign funds go to even these, these groups uh, via subcontracts or other loopholes that they were exploiting. And tell us a bit more about that. Now that these funds have been made available, what are the kinds of groups overseas that are getting U.S. taxpayer dollars in order to do abortions? Yeah, so it's good to make clear that since, thankfully, since the early 70s after Roe v. Wade, we, we have a policy in place called the Helms Amendment, which prohibits our direct taxpayer funds going to pay for abortions directly, very similar to our Hyde Amendment here domestically. But over the years, since the 70s, we, were, we weren't funding abortions directly, but we were sending millions, millions of dollars a year to these groups that were uh, promoting abortion and even uh, pushing other countries to, to change their uh, pro-life laws. And so that's what these groups are, International Planned Parenthood, Marie Stopes International, Center for Reproductive Rights Abroad, you name it, they're getting these funds. And while they can't be used for abortions, it's allowing them to free up other funds to, to expand their clinics in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, continuing to exploit those, those that have, you know, uh, have continued to be, been exploited through colonization, et cetera. This is the new colonization to say, if you want our foreign aid, uh, you know, you, you want to interact with the U.S. policy, you have to push abortions in your country, and our taxpayer dollars were helping to fund that. And we're not supposed to impose our Western values on the rest of the world unless they're progressive Western values in which it's okay to impose our Western values on the rest of the world. Now, Connor, there's been a lot of discussion domestically about how successfully we prohibit taxpayer dollars from being used for abortions in cases when we're supposed to. Is there accountability to these overseas funds to make sure that they're not actually paying for abortions? See, that's the thing. At first, there really wasn't. You know, when those Mexico City policies were in place in the previous Republican administrations, they had a good sense that they weren't going right big chunks of money through these grants going to International Planned Parenthood. But what the Trump administration did so well was, okay, they re-upped re this and they expanded the, the amount of funds that this policy applied to. But then as they went, they realized that actually there wasn't as much accountability as first thought. And so I can't think of an administration that really adapted to the policy to say, okay, here's the holes. Here's where they're actually using the funds to, you know, who knows what they're uh, using them for, abortions, et cetera, getting them from other means. And little by little, they were cutting them off, finding where those holes were and plugging them so that we were pretty certain that by the end of the Trump administration, they had done everything they could up to that point to stop these funds from subsidizing abortion. And you believe that those are still in place? 
No, so that's the thing. Now these these are not in place because um, with the Mexico City policy, protecting life and global health assistance, it's really a directive of the presidency. Congress has relegated that duty to the executive branch. And so these policies flip every time the administrations change from Republican to Democrat. And as we noted, you know, that was one of Biden's first action was to free up these funds once again. And why it was so much more dramatic this time around is because the policy was so sound. We were getting uh, data and, and reports back from the State Department showing just how they were directly cutting off contracts right from these abortion providers. And the moment Biden switched that policy off, uh, we knew that these funds were growing right back to them and even more so than they were prior to the Trump administration. Connor, is there anything that Congress can do on this issue or are we just left waiting for the next presidential election? That's the beauty. There's always something for Congress to do when it comes to our taxpayer funds, good and bad, but in this case, a really good thing, right? So that our policies aren't just radically changing. And even these grantees that are doing good work overseas in, in, in women's health, uh, they don't like having these policies flip every single year that the administration changes. So what can Congress do? Actually, there's two bills uh, led by Virginia Fox in the House and Senator Mike Lee in the Senate that actually would codify these policies. So it doesn't change from administration to administration. And that's what we'd call on Congress to do now. In about 15 seconds, what could our listeners do to support those efforts? Yeah, let your congressmen men and women know that you uh, support the Mexico City policy, Trump's efforts, and to push, push these bills into to the law. Connor Semmelsberger, as always, thanks for your vigilance on the life issues and for your time today. Yep, my pleasure, Joseph. Next on the program, the University of Pennsylvania has a man on the women's swimming team. Teammates who describe themselves as typically liberal are frustrated in speaking out. But should they be? That's the conversation we're going to have in our Worldview segment coming up right after the break. Stay with us. Here at FRC, we stand. We love to stand. We can't stop standing. We love standing so much, we actually removed all the chairs, couches, and stools from our premises. But that wasn't enough for us. We got USA-made 15-ounce stand mugs, so that if we ever forget what to do, we're reminded by the USA-made ceramic always close at hand. Whether drinking a morning brew, sipping afternoon tea, or chowing down on dinner, Everything served in a stand mug just pairs oh so well. Does a conscience that stands for faith, family, and freedom ever truly go thirsty? Get your stand mug at TonyPerkins.com and, as always, keep standing. To sharpen the biblical worldview of Christians and to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that is the mission of the Christian Worldview Radio Program. I'm host David Wheaton, inviting you to join us this Saturday morning at 9 Eastern, 8 Central, as we discuss all matters of life and faith from a decidedly biblical perspective. The Christian Worldview, Saturday mornings at 9 Eastern, 8 Central, right here on American Family Radio. When you hear this... 
This is American Family News. You know what follows is the truth. Your news from a Christian perspective. Hundreds of teachers are going to have to walk into that school building and they are forced to swallow political ideology that in many cases violates their very faith and conscience. If you miss it at the top of the hour, American Family News podcasts are available at AFN.net and sign up for our daily news brief at AFN.net. Now some good news from American Family Radio. For years, scientists and archaeologists have made discoveries consistent with claims in the Bible. In 1961, an archaeological dig revealed evidence of Pontius Pilate. In 1993, and again in 2019, evidence was found to support the existence of King David. In 2018, a Rockefeller University genetic study found that all human life descended from one genetic pair. Archaeologists have been able to corroborate elements of the New Testament story of Jesus, and first-century historians Tacitus and Josephus refer to Jesus in their writings. The dramatic gospel accounts of Jesus' horrible suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection from death still stand up against expert scrutiny. In light of historic confirmations, many are finding it harder to doubt Jesus' claims, and people honestly searching for truth are coming to believe in Jesus. For more information, ask a Christian or read the Bible, an encouragement from the American Family Association. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. He'll be back with you on Monday. So many resources here at Family Research Council we want to make you aware of. And one of them, for those of you who are interested in what is happening at your local school board and how to do something about it, FRC Action launched a virtual school board boot camp series done these events in various places around the country, but you can access all those materials from the comfort of your kitchen table, living room, wherever you have your device. Just visit frcaction.org schools to see the boot camp content, school board boot camp content to find out how you can take back the school board near you. Now, a swimmer, at the University of Pennsylvania, has been making waves this season. For three years, he competed, competed on the men's team as Will Thomas, and he did okay. This year, he is competing as Leah Thomas on the women's team, and he's been leaving the competition in his wake. As of December, Thomas had recorded the fastest times in women's college for the 200-meter and 500-meter freestyle and won the 1,650-meter freestyle race by nearly 40 seconds. That's more than a pool's length. While some are cheering him on, not everyone is happy. One teammate who spoke anonymously for fear of retribution said, quote, I am typically liberal, but this is past that. This is so wrong. This doesn't make any sense, end quote. Is it true that it doesn't make any sense? Or is all of this a perfectly logical result of the ideas the left has embraced and promoted over the last several decades? That's the conversation that we're going to have with David Claussen, who is our director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. David, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday. Great to be with you, Joseph. Now, I'm going to start by saying this conversation is, is 
um, inspired by an article that I have written this week that you can find at frcblog.com. And it is entitled, When Liberal Truths Come Home to Roost. And it just kind of breaks down this subject. And so we commend that to you at frcblog.com. But uh, David, to start this off, what was your first reaction when you heard about Leah Thomas, formerly Will Thomas, competing on the women's swim team at Penn? I think at this point, Joseph, I'm still surprised when I read stories like this. Uh, you know, this is a, a story of a biological male who was actually on the men's team for three seasons, competed as Will Thomas. Uh, you go to the University of Pennsylvania swim team page and you look at previous seasons, you can see Will Thomas there. They actually r removed his picture, uh, but you can still see his statistics and his bio and whatnot. Uh, but now, uh, Will Thomas has become Leah Thomas and is a uh, smashing records, uh, just lapping the competition. And again, in one sense, this is surprising, but in another sense, uh, you know, this is the slippery slope uh, that conservatives were talking about seven years ago when we were having the debate on same-sex marriage. So it's surprising in one sense, just because it's so dramatic, uh, seeing that the, these women athletes just getting just destroyed by this male swimmer. But in another sense, it's actually not surprising uh, because our culture has been moving in this direction for some time now. And I want to talk about how that's happening. But what's interesting about this uh, this issue, this transgender issue, and certainly in the context of sports, is we are hearing from many people who identify generally on the political left. But they're saying, this is a bridge too far for me. What is different about this issue that makes people who are, quote-unquote, typically liberal, and we'll get into that one teammate in a moment, um, people who identify themselves as typically liberal, who would take the conservative or right-wing position on this issue? Why is this issue different? I think what's so interesting about this, Joseph, because you're right, a lot of the people that are complaining about this, uh, some of Thomas's own teammates who are having to do it anonymously, uh, parents for swimmers on this team. Again, this is the University of Pennsylvania. This is an Ivy League school. About the vast majority of students and parents associated with the school are very liberal. This is the love is love crowd. Uh, but I think one of the reasons uh, that they're starting to push back on this is because it's so objectively unfair. Uh, this is a biological male swimmer. Uh, I, I know that, that Thomas has gone through some sort of hormone therapy or whatnot, but the biology, the anatomy, the muscle mass, uh, I, I think I saw yesterday, uh, Joseph, Michael Phelps, uh, you know, the most decorated Olympian swimmer of all time, who I believe is very progressive on most issues, even he uh, has come out and said, I, I don't feel good about this. Uh, and others, too, Martina Navratilova, who's one of the most well-known tennis players in history, uh, she's uh, a lesbian. Uh, she's come out saying that this kind of issue with sports is not fair. And I think the reason we're seeing this, Joseph, is because with the issue of sports, uh, people love their sports, and seeing that uh, a lot of work's been done to allow women and girls to have their own competitions, their own divisions, their own conferences, and now we're seeing that men, who are probably subpar men, crossing over, but because of the genetics, the biology, and the anatomy, um, doing so well and beating these women, it's so objectively unfair, and people are now across the political spectrum seeing that. I think you're right about that. I think this is obviously unfair, and there's this fairness principle at play. But for decades, 
We've heard about this other fairness principle, which is essentially that not being given the ability to live your truth or to live authentically is also unfair. And that part of human dignity is the ability to essentially define your own reality and expect other people to agree with that reality. And for them not to is unfair because you're denying people that truth. How should these fairness principles be reconciled? Yeah, it's a good question. We, you and I, Jason, have had conversations about what is fairness. You and I, you know, on the surface, we, we believe in fairness. You know, the Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei says all people are made God's image and are owed equal treatment. Uh, however, the, the Christian worldview also gives us categories and that you rightfully point out in your blog uh, that there are some ultimate truths uh, that we can't uh, wish away or pretend don't exist. And I think a story like this runs smack against uh, ultimate truth, such as uh, the biological reality that you have men and women. And no matter how much I authentically want to live my truth, whether however I want to identify, again, that, smack, that runs smack dab uh, into these non-negotiable truths that sooner or later we're going to have to recognize, acknowledge, and grapple with. I think that's right. I think ultimately these fairness principles, which fairness is a justice issue and it's something that we have to care about, but it does not transcend reality. And I have made the analogy in the past, this is essentially like those of us who lack wings claiming that gravity discriminates against wingless creatures, hmm. which it inevitably does because we are not allowed to do things. We are not able to do things that creatures with wings are able to do, but that's not a function of discrimination or inequity or an injustice. It's a function of the design that the creator has given to the world. And to the extent that we push against that design, we create trouble for ourselves and others to the extent that we embrace that it goes generally better for us. But I want to get into specifically the quotes from Thomas's teammate, yeah. again, given anonymously to the Daily Wire. She said, quote, I am typically liberal, but this is past that. I want to break this down a bit. What do you think she means when she says, I am typically liberal? I would imagine, you know, this is, this, this after all, is our worldview segment. I would imagine what she means by that, that she's typically liberal as that she's probably in favor of things like same-sex marriage. She's probably in favor of SOGI ordinances, uh, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity rec being recognized as uh, codified protected classes. She's probably in favor of uh, people in her friend circles who are transgender, who, who, who want to identify as uh, an opposite gender r rather than the sex they were assigned at birth. That, that's the language that they would use. So I imagine these teammates, again, this is the University of Pennsylvania we're talking about. This is uh, not a hotbed of conservatism by any means. So probably most of Thomas's teammates would go along with a progressive, sexual, um, wo secular worldview when it comes to issues related to gender and sexuality. So again, I bet, uh, I, I know that the, the teammate didn't go into detail about this, but on sexual ethics, I would imagine most of Thomas's teammates uh, considering these issues in the abstract would be very, very progressive. And the transgender issue did not come out of nowhere. Oh. A lot of track was laid to get us to this point. And a couple of points I made in this blog article that I want to discuss with you is that I believe the debate over same-sex marriage essentially laid the foundation for what we're seeing on the Pennsylvania women's swim team right now for two reasons. 
because there, there were two arguments that had to be made in order for same-sex marriage to be embraced by the culture. And one of those was that living authentically is the greatest thing a person can do. And that's where hashtag love is love essentially came from. We want to get people out of the second class citizenship status that results from saying there's a difference between a heterosexual relationship with can produce children and, and a relationship that can never produce children, saying those, di those differences are meaningless. The most important thing is that people have the opportunity to live authentically, uh, live their truth, and that culture will affirm that. But secondly, the, the notion that the differences between men and women weren't significant enough for legal distinctions to be made between them. Because when we redefined marriage laws, what we said is there is no meaningful difference between a relationship involving a man and a woman and a relationship involving two men, which essentially means the ability to produce a child is irrelevant to the status of that relationship. We continue to debate that to this day, but it is my belief that the embrace of those two presuppositions that led us to same-sex marriage made it very easy then for the transgender lobby to come along and say, well, we want some things too, because we also believe that the ability to live authentically is the most important thing. And we also believe that the difference between men and women is not significant enough for any of us to care about. What's your response to that? Well, I agree with you, Joseph, wholeheartedly, and I'd point to our listeners to the majority decision in the Obergefell v. Hodges decision authored by Anthony Kennedy. That's the 5-4 decision that uh, legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. And in that first paragraph in his majority decision, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but essentially what uh, Justice uh, Kennedy was arguing is that we, that all people uh, should have the right to uh, pursue happiness and kind of define happiness uh, according to their conception of happiness. Uh, they should be able to order their lives uh, and enter into relationships uh, that fit uh, their conception of what a relationship should look like and what marriage should look like. And it doesn't matter that for 2,000 years, you know, that, or even beyond that, that marriage has been a, a, between a man and a woman and that the state has uh, interest in uh, recognizing that and affirming that and encouraging that. And so you're absolutely right. It's this idea, Joseph, uh, that I can create kind of my own reality to fit uh, the whims, the desires, the passions that I have in the moment. And in 2015, a lot of folks were, uh, even in the dissents of the Obergefell decision, saying this is going to lead to a lot of uh, kind of a, the slippery slope argument. People said, you know, if you guys are, you know, you conservative Christians, you're just engaging in uh, arguments that are, again, using a slippery slope anatomy or analogy. Well, then just a couple months later, what happened, Joseph? That's when Bruce Jenner came out as Caitlyn Jenner. And then it was kind of off to the races. Because uh, if we can redefine marriage, well, we can redefine gender. We can redefine our conception of how we want to live our lives. And so, again, this, this underlining logic for the same-sex debate, uh, really you see this in the gender ideology debates, which is why, as Christians, we need to think deeply about these things, which is why at FRC, one of the projects you and I are working on is a Sunday school curriculum uh, to look at uh, how Christians should think about gender and sexuality. Uh, folks can sign up at frc.org slash worldview email uh, to learn more about this curriculum that we're putting together because I think, Joseph, you said in the, the, the blog, we all should have known better uh, pertaining to these issues and where our culture is moving. We should have. And I think our churches uh, need to do a better job of equipping our folks to think faithfully through all of these issues. 
David, do you think that means it's unreasonable for people who describe themselves as typically liberal, who generally uh, embrace this laissez-faire kind of sexual attitude, this do what makes you happy, live your truth world? Is it unreasonable for that worldview to object to men competing against women? It is unreasonable, but it's not surprising. Uh, you know, our colleague George Barna in his worldview inventory surveys shows that upwards of 80% of Americans have what you could call a synchronistic worldview, which means they don't have a coherent worldview. So they pick and choose aspects of uh, an assortment of worldviews. And so I think what you have in uh, the case of this story, Joseph, you have people who are pretty much committed to a secular worldview, but what are they doing? They're borrowing uh, language and concepts from the Christian worldview when they realize that their own worldview doesn't explain the situation that they're encountering that seems so unfair when they're getting blown out of the pool uh, by a biological male. From my perspective, the solution to this is going back to a world where we recognize there are ultimate truths that transcend our feelings, where we can say to each other, I believe you feel that way. I even believe you have good intentions, but the way you feel is inconsistent with reality. But if we embrace that world with respect to gender, we're going to have to embrace that world with respect to a whole bunch of other things as well. Do you think the culture and those maybe on the left who are generally libertine and looking for the freedom to do whatever they want are willing to apply that same standard to themselves if we're going to somehow get women or get men out of the women's sports teams? I don't think so, Joseph, and I think the way you ended the blog was really well. If the logic of this continues, uh, this issue is going to be the least problematic of the issues we're concerning uh, if we continue to allow the transgender ideology uh, to run its course. David Clausen, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Friends, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you on Monday. Until then, make sure to fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.